one more announcement just while we wait. Um, work days, you know, there is a lot going on still, as Pastor Bruzik mentioned in the announcements. Um, I think we've had a very good turnout the past, the past week at least. Um, there's lots to do. You know, it's not, as he said, it's not all the skilled labor as before. It's, it's a lot of dust. It's painting. It's washing. It's doing stuff like that. Ceiling tiles. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. If you're interested, please come Monday and Wednesday. Rich, what time does it start? 6.30? 6 o'clock. I always think it's 6.30. It's 6 o'clock, Monday, Wednesday, and then Saturday morning as well. There are always guys over there. There are women over there. Um, if you've got some kids that can, you know, push a broom, that'd be great too. Uh, but please, please, please come to the North Campus. If anything, just to get sort of a free tour of the place. It really is coming together nicely. Um, and every day there's additional work being done. So if you want to see the place, um, if you wouldn't mind helping out for even 90 minutes, uh, please go to the North Campus, okay? I think, Vic, are you done with that side? Okay. Uh, so two things are going around. You should have a handout that I gave out the past two weeks, that's only if you forgot it. Um, that's the one Dave took around. Also, uh, the vicar and Martha should have handed out a new handout. It's a one-pager, front and back. Um, let's pray and let's get started, okay? Um, a really nice prayer, actually, from the Lutheran hymnal. That was, uh, it's the prayer upon entering here. Uh, so we'll pray that one. Almighty, ever-living God, grant that we may gladly hear your word, and that all our worship may be acceptable unto you. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, um, we, uh, we've, only got, we've only got two weeks left to kind of finish this topic, at least the outlines that I'd like to get through. Um, so I would like to keep going today. I'd like to address just uh, two points of um, question from last week, and partly it was because they weren't in the outline but I would like to give you a handout just with some, uh, some thoughts. Now, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to go through each of these points. There was probably, you know, five or six hours of work put into this, um, but you can read them at home. You're all very bright. Uh, get out your Bible. Try to look some stuff up. I only want to read you just a couple of these citations. If you look at the sheet that says John 20 on the top, uh, one of the questions from last week was whether or not John chapter 20, um, the sending out of the apostles, as it is in my outline, whether or not that was really the apostles or maybe a broader group. And then, you know, sort of the logical conclusions are, um, if that was the apostles or if Jesus gave the keys only to the apostles, then sort of the structure of the church looks one way, and we'll look at that. Uh, the flip side is, if Jesus gives the office of the keys, bind and forgive sins, to every Christian, so it's not just the apostles in the upper room, then there might be uh, a, a different sort of implication, um, as in all Christians have the keys and pastors then work for the church. And we'll see how that's been played out in the history of our own church body. Um, you know, lots of these are exegetical conclusions. Um, I tried to give you a range of exegetical scholars here, evangelicals, reformed, there's a Luther citation, um, a Catholic citation, then Kittle. Kittle is sort of the theological word dictionary in the history of the church. He probably has what eight volumes, Pastor Bruzek? Yeah, I've got the big. I've got the big set. I think it's. I think it's at least eight on the New Testament, and then um, you know there's a whole Old Testament set that goes with it. Each volume is about 600 pages, so there are about 5,000 pages of all it is is every word that appears in the New Testament, a long description 
where it's been used in the Old Testament, where it was used in sort of the cultic times, where it was used in the New Testament, and where it was used in the Gospels, and where it's found today. So you can look up a word like apostle and figure out what usage it has. I've given you a Kittle citation as well. But one that I think is helpful for the discussion, or maybe to at least help us move forward a bit, is on the back of your sheet. On the back of your sheet, um, the very last citation above sheep or shepherd comes from the Lutheran confessions. Uh, and as we'll see, you know, the Lutheran confessions are sort of the rule and norm of Lutheran faith and life. So, um, you know, we can, we can discuss whether or not John 20 is for the apostles and therefore for pastors or for every Christian, but here's what the Lutheran confessions have to say, and therefore here's what Lutheranism has to say. For Christ sent out the apostles with this command, as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So at least as far as the confessions are concerned, the account in John chapter 20 is directed primarily um, at the apostles. And there was a question even, you know, some bright folks wanted to know, well, that's the English translation. What does the German or the Latin say? Which is, of course, what um, the Lutheran confessions were written in. So I brought the Concordia Triglotta, which is triglot, three languages, Latin, German, and English. Uh, the German uses the word um, apostol, which is the plural for apostle. So it says, the apostles were sent out. And the Latin translation of the Augsburg Confession says, cum hoc mandato Christus mitit apostolos. Christ gave the mandate to send out the apostles. So um, I think it's pretty fair to say, and we could discuss it further, but that would be over a beer maybe. Um, I think it's pretty fair to say that so far as the Lutheran confessions are concerned, um, the account in John chapter 20 is directed specifically at the apostles. Okay? There was one other question last week about sheep and a shepherd um, and some of the imagery in the text. And I know that doesn't appear primarily in my outline. That's for a couple of reasons. Um, the main reason it doesn't appear in the outline is we have discussed it in other venues. I know maybe not at this specific Bible study, but in preaching, um, we've discussed this relationship when those texts appear. I think even at the governing board, we talked about it briefly. But I want to give you just two citations because I think the common picture we have of a shepherd and consequently of sheep is this really warm relationship. The shepherd sort of you know, rubs the back of the sheep. And the, yeah, the sheep do some funny, goofy things. But at the end of the day, there's this real uh, sort of loving relationship and everything is, everything is great. When in actuality, that's not the way sheep always function. If you've ever been on a farm, you've seen this. So I'll give you two citations here. Um, one is from this book. It's a collection of essays, Broken Vessels. But you see there, this was my first encounter with sheep. This is Andre, the author. When I was a boy, sheep had, a certain, had certain meanings. In the Western movies, sheep herders interfered with the hero's cattle, or the villain's ideas about his grazing rights interfered with the hero's struggle to raise his sheep. And Christ has called us his flock, his sheep. There were pictures of him holding lambs in his arms. His face was tender and loving. And I grew up with a sense of those feelings, of being a source of them. We were sweet and lovable sheep. And I'll admit it, because I write for them, if you look at any CPH kid material, this is primarily the picture you see, right? I can say that because I'm an author for them. <laughs> but after a few weeks in that New Hampshire house, I saw that Christ's analogy meant something entirely different. We were stupid, helpless brutes, and without constant watching, we would foolishly destroy ourselves. And so then I've given you Kittle down there. Kittle says one additional thing, and I actually didn't have time to look it up, but if you'd like it, I can find it for you. Um, Kittle, again, this big set of works, um, traces 
the word for shepherd. And he says in Matthew 25, 32, Jesus uses the image of the shepherd and the flock to illustrate the execution of eschatological judgment. So uh, to be a shepherd is more than just to sort of go out and find the one lost sheep. That is part of it. To be a sheep is more than just to be sort of this loving, cute animal that the shepherd shears and isn't it great. To be a shepherd is, as, as Kittle will say, and this is the one I'll find you, is to be a managing director. It's the person in charge of the flock. Um, and to be a sheep is not always to sort of be this you know, sweet, helpless face who follows the shepherd. Every once in a while, sheep go astray. So you have all those images in the text. Um, and with all of that, I'd like to keep moving because I have a whole other hand, actually I have a couple more handouts that I'd like to give you. Are there any, any questions at this point, just before we keep going? Okay, flip back in your outline. Sure, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yep. Yeah, uh, as Pastor Bruzik said, this last image by Kittle of the shepherd executing the eschatological judgment is precisely the same thing that's given to the apostles in the upper room, as the confessions say, to forgive and to retain sins. You see pictures of Jesus this way as the shepherd. In fact, there's a great one at the Fort Wayne Seminary. There's a big todayum window, and then there's a big judgment wall, and it's all mosaic. And in one hand, Jesus has a lily. He forgives sins. And in the other hand, Jesus has a sword. He retains sins. He executes the judgment on top of the world as the shepherd of the sheep. So yeah, you're exactly right. This is, this is the same imagery then connected to Jesus and the apostles in John chapter 20. Okay? Now, if you'll flip back, um, go to page 3. I know, way back. I sent you to 12. Now we're going to go back to 3. And I want to get through five, and then I want to hand you out one more thing. So we've got about 30 minutes. I don't want to rush, but I also want to be sort of efficient if we can. On page three, um, up to this point, I've given you sort of all the biblical citations for the ministry. Obviously, there are more, um, but these are sort of the major themes. And the ministry, of course, develops in Eden. As Pastor Bruzek ended his sermon today, the goal of the Christian life and the goal of Jesus' earthly ministry is to get people back to Eden and there's a reason then he institutes the ministry today in the way he does. He wants to return people to Eden. But page three there, I've given you um, a couple confessional citations on the ministry. One um, is on ordination. And um, th now these are my words, but then I'll give you the confessional point inside the quotations. Ordination is what makes a pastor a pastor. And because ordination delivers the gift of the Holy Spirit by way of the laying on of hands, we looked at those verses, the Lutheran confessions speak of the rite this way. If ordination is interpreted in relation to the ministry of the word to deliver the gifts of God, we have no objection to calling ordination a sacrament. If ordination is interpreted this way, we shall not object either to calling the laying on of hands a sacrament. Um, and you can, you, know, you can take that for what it's worth. The point is ordination is um, what makes a pastor a pastor, but more than that, ordination is mere, more than merely uh, sort of a simple human right. Um, and actually, the laying on of hands is vitally important. We were just at David Miller's ordination in September, was that? October, something like that. And uh, the district president, who seems like a very good guy, he was at the ordination, and he said, he gathered all the pastors around, and he said, um, you know, at the ordination, I expect you're going to put hands on his head. In my district, that's what we do. Why? Because that's what the confessions say. That's what the biblical texts say. Uh, then the ministry, 
the ministry was instituted by Jesus not as an end in itself, but as a means to an end. As the Lutheran confessions assert, quote, to obtain such faith, and of course if you read backwards, you'd see that the faith that they're quoting there is Augsburg 4, the faith that's given in justification. To obtain such faith, God instituted the office of the ministry. So obtaining faith is dependent upon the institution of the ministry. Augsburg 5, paragraph 1, in Tappert, page 31. And again, quote, by these means are given not bodily, but eternal blessings and gifts as everlasting righteousness, the Holy Spirit, and everlasting life. And that last one is the most interesting. You obtain everlasting life by the ministry that Jesus institutes. These gifts can be obtained in no other way than by the ministry of preaching and the administration of the sacraments alone. The italics are taperts, the underline is mine. Since the ministry is essential for the salvation of the church, the Lutheran confessions do not permit those non-called and by virtue of not being called, the non-ordained, from exercising the office of the ministry. As the confessions say, Augsburg 14, it is taught among us that nobody should publicly teach or preach or administer the sacraments in the church without a regular call. Rite vocatis. Yes. Good. That would be an emergency. I don't have my phone on me. Do you have it? If I was a hipster, what I would have done is I would have had my iPhone on me and I'd had it. Anybody have an iPhone? Anybody have their iPhone on them? Does it have a password? Oh, I don't want, I don't want, I could break into that too easily. Somebody give me one that doesn't have a password or does have a password. Good, that's what I wanted. No, I don't want you to open it. Just leave it like that. Okay? Hey, this is the new iPhone 4. Good job. Good for you. Okay, so this is the ministry, and I'll admit this image is from Pastor Bruzek, so the river flows in a different direction here. Um, this is the ministry given by God. Now, you've just uh, given us an instance where a layperson has operated in the function of the ministry. So um, let me give this to you, Marty. Go ahead and open that up and use it, okay? Oh, wait, say that again? Yeah, right. Okay. Now, why can't you open up and use it? Use it. They have a passcode. You don't know the passcode. Now, you can hit that emergency button. Don't hit it. No. Emma hit it once. What happens when you hit the emergency button? Yeah, it goes to a new screen, and 911 starts going. After you told it not to hit it, did you just hit it? Okay, good. I know you were a fire chief, but come on now. What happens if you hit the emergency button? Somebody will show up to help you, right? Or the emergency will be fixed, hopefully. Now, what happens if you hit the emergency button and it wasn't really an emergency? Yeah, you get more than fined. I did that once as a kid. I called 911 about three times just because I thought it was fun. It's not so fun when the police show up at your front door. Okay? So here's the thing. If this is the ministry given by God and it's been given to you, not rightly called, you can operate or function in the confines of the ministry, but only if you touch the emergency button. If you touch the emergency button and it's an emergency, God bless you, the Lord did his good work. If you touch the emergency button and it's not an emergency, well, then the police aren't going to show up, the Lord might show up. So the question is, um, what would constitute an emergency? And, and here's the thing, there are as many ideas about that as there are people who want to offer them. The point is, well, let me say two things. One, um, I would be hard-pressed to find an emergency Eucharist today. Uh, you will find churches where pastors maybe are 15 or 20 miles away, 
but it's not like when the American Lutheran Church first started where pastors were two or three hundred miles away by horse. Um, there are emergency baptisms, and I know people that have done them, and thank God they did it. That might be a more reasonable case to make as an emergency baptism, but uh, to figure out what an emergency is, that's a very difficult thing, and uh, just pressing the button to press the button is not the way the church is supposed to function. Do you have something more to add than that? Okay. That make, does that make sense? So, yes, you can, but only in, emergen in an emergency, and that's the difficult thing to figure out. And, and yes, and here's, yeah, emergencies don't make good rules or good laws. So what we're talking about is the normal course of life here, um, not an emergency situation. This is why Luther said, and this is actually late Luther, if a layman should perform all the outward functions of a priest, celebrating mass, confirming, absolving, which is interesting because what, what, do, uh, what does the group get in the upper room in John 20? The keys, which is really just a fancy way of talking about absolution. So even Luther aligns that with the function of a priest. Administering the sacraments, dedicating altars, churches, vessels, vestments, etc. It is certain that these actions in all respects would be similar to those of a true priest. In fact, they might be performed more reverently and properly than the real ones. Peter Savitsky could chant the verba better than I could. Okay? He could chant the verba better than I could. The point is, he's not been ordained. But because he has not been consecrated, made holy, and ordained and sanctified, you notice there Luther doesn't say he has a call to a local congregation. He performs nothing at all but his only plain church and deceiving himself and his followers. Okay? Now, given all of that, given all of that, um, well, actually, I'm, I think I've given you the text, bits of it at least. Given all of that, in the church there are leaders and there are followers. Or, as Dr. Luther says, there are givers and there are receivers. We ran that margin comment about two weeks ago, late Luther. He says, some in the church are givers and some in the church are receivers. This imagery and its corresponding reality is drawn from St. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, a common text used at weddings. In Ephesians 5, you remember, St. Paul talks about the unique relationship that exists between husbands and wives. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, his body, for he is her head. Likewise, wives should submit to their husbands as to the church, submits to Christ, for she is his body. But then St. Paul throws a wrench into the imagery by saying, quote, this mystery, and in the Latin, the translation of the Latin, it actually is sacramentum, this sacrament is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So this whole discussion of husbands and wives, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives, finds its foundation, its center, its beginning in the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, Ephesians 5.32. The relationship between husbands and wives, as far as the Bible is concerned, is first and foremost witnessed to in the relationship between Christ and his church. Christ gives, the church receives. Christ leads, the church follows. Anyone disagree? Good, this is easy. Keep going. But then you have texts where Jesus says things like, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Obviously, Luke 10 there is the sending out of his apostles. So if you, hear, if you heard St. Peter or if you heard St. John, you heard Jesus. If you rejected St. Peter, you rejected Jesus, and as Jesus says, if you reject Jesus, you reject the Father who sent him. And again, 
When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And that, I can tell you, is a direct reference to the apostles. Because in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, he says, he, the text says, he gathered all the disciples to himself, all the mathetai, all the disciples. And you say, whoa, is that everybody or just the apostles? And then he says, and he sent out the apostles, the very next verse. He gathers them as disciples. He sends them out as apostles. Okay? And so then 19 verses later, 18 verses later, he says, and don't worry about what you're going to say because I'll give you the words to speak. And from the liturgy then, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ. You just heard me say it this morning. What does this mean? Good Lutheran question. It means that apostles and pastors stand in the place of Jesus and for the advantage of those placed under their care. If you go home to the Oxford Dictionary and look up stead, it'll say it has a twofold definition. In the place of someone and for the advantage of others. So when a pastor says, I stand in the stead and by the command of Jesus, he says, I stand in the place of Jesus and for the advantage of all those to whom I am speaking. This is why Luther says in the small catechism, when you see the pastor and he forgives your sins, it's not as though the pastor himself is doing it. It is as though Christ himself is present and speaking to you. And because pastors stand in his stead, actually, let me stop after the first point. I've got two other Bible verses to give you that I thought of after I printed the outline for the fourth time. Let me give you one now. 2 Corinthians 2.10. You don't have to look it up. I can give it to you, and you can go look it up at home if you want. But 2 Corinthians 2.10 has this very interesting, interesting bit where St. Paul is talking about how he's forgiving sins. 2 Corinthians 2.10. And St. Paul says, when I forgive your sins, I stand... In the English, it says, in the presence of Christ. The King James translates it the best from the, from the Greek. In the Greek, it actually says, when I forgive your sins, St. Paul says, I am standing in the person of Christ. Or in the Latin, in persona Christi. In the person of. That means when you saw Paul, you saw Jesus. And because pastors stand in his stead for Christ and for your advantage, it means you should have the same relationship with your pastor that you have with Jesus, head and body, leader, follower, giver, receiver. And I still get questions today about obedience and authority and people don't understand. Well, I've said here, that's precisely, uh, and this precisely is what folks miss when they balk at talk of authority or obedience. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Ball's open there, that's good. That's where you want to be. Hebrews is a great book. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Um, at this point, whoever wrote the letter to the Hebrews has talked about the priest Melchizedek, Jesus standing in the priestly ministry, and priests who then come after Jesus. And then he says here in verse 17, uh, chapter 13, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. That sounds very similar to Ephesians chapter 5. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And this, this often sometimes people forget about. On the last day, you have to give an account for yourself and for your family if you're a father, or if there is no father, you're a mother for your family. On the last day, I have to give an account for myself, my family, and everyone who's ever been under my care. Okay? So, so St. Paul, or sorry, St. Paul, I'm slipping into some reform thought. 
I don't know if St. Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, but whoever wrote it says, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So it says in the NIV, you know, obey your leaders, submit to them, and make their lives happy, their lives joyful. Why? Because if they're not joyful, it's of no advantage to you. Okay, that makes sense? So then Luther in the large catechism, I gave you this last week, large catechism, Ten Commandments, where he talks about um, honoring your father and your mother, the fourth commandment. Thus we have three kinds of fathers presented in this commandment. Fathers by blood, fathers of a household, and fathers of the nation. So yes, President Obama, sadly, for some of you, he is your father. For others of you, it's great. Um, but the president is your father. Whoever is the head of your household is the father. And then he goes on to say, paragraph 161, yet there is need to impress upon the common people that they who would bear the name Christians owe it to God to show double honor to those who watch over their souls and to treat them well and make provisions for them. God will adequately recompense those who do so and will not let them suffer want. Okay, so uh, Ten Commandments, Large Catechism, Fourth Commandment, paragraph 161. Okay, so uh, falling in line then with the book of Hebrews, Luther says, give your pastors, give your spiritual fathers um, a double honor. Consequently, now back to your outline. If you don't believe in coming under the authority of your pastor, then you don't believe in coming under the authority of Jesus. And therefore the words, in the stead and by the command of Jesus, I forgive you all your sins, fall on deaf ears. If you don't believe it from your pastor, then why should you believe it from Jesus, or vice versa? Okay? And I've given you, I, I was not an artist, I've told you this many times. I looked for stick figures on the internet, I found them on a Google image search. I couldn't find a way to get them on this document, I don't know how to do that. So I got out my pen and I started drawing stick figures. figures. Um, and as you can see, they don't all add up. Somebody said to me, why didn't you use a ruler? And I thought, I never would have thought of that. So there you go, Ephesians 5, when you read that, you say husbands and wives, and it makes you happy. Then you say, wait a second, or St. Paul does, I'm talking about Christ and the church. Christ is the head, the church is the body. And we go, well, that's a little confusing. And then, from all of that, you see that pastors stand in the place of Christ, in persona Christi, says St. Paul. So it's pastor's head, congregation's body. And we say, no way, that can't be true. Make sense? This is the point. Um, some people are the body, some people are the head. How do you become the head? Christ makes you the head. How do you become the body? Christ baptizes you and makes you the body. Um, and that's the relationship, that's the back and forthness, giver and receiver, that needs to be present in the church for the church to grow and flourish. Okay? Yes? Uh, yeah, we can. I don't know if I had it written out here for you. Oh, yes, I did. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, that's typically the way Lutherans have interpreted the text. Yeah, remember, though, the 70 are the disciples who are sent out in apostolic succession with the apostles. 70 or the 72, and then you have that carried on in the book of Acts. So whomever Jesus has commissioned with the ministry, apostles, and then the 70 or slash 72, there's some discrepancy over how many there were, are given that, um, are given that task to say what Jesus says and to do what Jesus does. Yeah, they're all ordained. That's the point. Which one? I did bring them. I've got them all right here. I just haven't handed them out yet. Who doesn't have the fourth commandment handout? I gave it out last week. 
Vicar, will you? It's not part of that package. Will you hand that out? I'm sorry. I. Oh no, that's in the. That's in your thing right there. Oh man. I gave those to Tammy. I gave Tammy a blank one. Well, sorry, I did have stick figures in the original one. If you have the original one, you do have stick figures. Yeah, uh, see? Stick figures. There you go. Everybody, no, whoever doesn't have that needs that one. Yes, they are. Yeah. Uh, let's see, Dave, will you help me or somebody help me with this? Thank you. I'll give, everybody gets that. And everybody, nope, same thing, there you go. Other side. Finally, an empty box. Um, I've given you here the actual ordination rite, right out of the Lutheran service book. Um, this rite, the most magnificent thing about this rite is how well it speaks of the ministry and how biblical and confessional it is. But even in the general rubric, rubrics on the first page, the general notes, you can see here um, some very helpful things that describe the office of the ministry. So look at your first page. It should say page 160 at the bottom. We're not going to read through all of this. I've got a couple things highlighted that we can sort of um, highlight verbally. General notes. Look at that one. Number one, it says, this rite is, is administered according to the church's usual order by those so authorized for such men whom the church has determined to be ready and prepared to enter the office of the holy ministry and to have received a regular call to minister in the church. So there are two things that make a person ready for ordination. Study for the ministry, examination, um, and then ultimately a call, rite vocatis, Article 14 of Confessions. Look down then at the rite in detail. The ordination preferably takes place in the divine service before the prayer of the church. Why is it good that ordination takes place in the divine service and let's say, or, 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 as opposed to evening prayer or matins? Yes. Because of communion, keep going. Why is communion important at an ordination? One, because the guy's a sinner and he needs it. Why else? Yes. Yeah, because his primary point of responsibility is at the altar. What he will be known for is presiding over the Eucharist. Um, look at number four. The propers are those appointed on page 200. You can look at those later. The color of the day is red. What does the color red have to signify? Holy Spirit, the one whom the, whom the, who the pastor receives. What else does it signify? The shedding of Christ's blood and, frankly, the blood of the martyrs. Whenever you have a martyr's feast day, the color is always red. Usually those martyrs, in many instances, were what? Pastors, right? So you fall in line, you fall in succession to those pastors who have gone before you. Point 11. For the actual ordination, the presiding minister lays both his hands on the head of the candidate. Why does he lay both his hands on the head of the candidate? Because the hands deliver the gift. So you've seen this maybe, where a guy will hover like this. You ever seen this? Sort of like, I don't know what the movie, like a little Star Wars effect. He sort of hovers over the top. Hovering doesn't deliver the gift. Why? St. Paul says, don't neglect the gift that was given to you when the council of pastors laid their hands on you. Okay? Yes. Uh, I, I've, I've heard of that, yeah, where, where, the, where the guy who was doing the ordination sort of hovered over the guy's head, and the man who was down on his knees about to be ordained takes his hand and puts it on his head. Because the man who was being ordained knew that in order to get the gift, what had to happen? Hands on his head. And you have this in the rubric, which some people just don't want to follow. 
Number 12, following the ordination, the newly ordained pastor assumes the role of the presiding minister. Not only does he preside at the Eucharist, because that's his proper place, but he is the presiding minister at the service because ordination made him a pastor. He's not a deacon, he's not a vicar, he's not a layperson, he is a pastor. Flip your page. The candidate is presented before the altar. The presiding minister standing before the altar says, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. So we want, to invoke the, we want to invoke the Trinity for this. It's very important. Beloved in the Lord, you know, Joshua Dale Gainick has been called by the Lord of the church. Now this is important. Has been called by the Lord of the church into the office of the holy ministry of the word and the sacraments. Go down then right past his name again. According to apostolic practice, Okay? According to apostolic practice, which means the practice of the apostles, John 20, he is now presented to be ordained and consecrated to this office, and the office, of course, then is established by God. It wasn't our idea to establish the office, nor was it our idea to ordain people through the laying on of hands. Yes? Baptist ministers? I don't really know any Baptist ministers. I don't... Well, I can give you, let me give you this example, and it won't answer that specific question, but it may give you a hint as to the evangelical practice. At a given church, you could have some men who are pastors and have been ordained, and some men who are pastors and have not been ordained. So, for example, I had some very good friends down at College Church, some pastors down there. One guy was ordained through the laying on of hands. The senior pastor was not ordained. Um... To them, the practice doesn't have the apostolic character, necessarily. Or at least it isn't as necessary today as it was for them. No, they don't do a lot of communion either. Yeah, that's the thing. And, some, and what always happened was some pastors, like down at, uh, down at the Bible church, or co- not Bible church, college church, um, some pastors will do infant baptisms and some will not. Usually, the guys I knew, now this is not across the board, but the guys I knew who had been ordained would do infant baptisms. The guys who had not been ordained would not do infant baptisms. I don't know why. I never asked them, but that's just the way it sorted out. Yes? Oh, I agree. I agree. It just was interesting that the ordained guys, because here's the thing. If you see ordination in Scripture, you have a better chance of seeing baptism in the Scriptures. Exactly right. Yep. So it is a practice in some churches. Yes, Peter? Um, are you talking in the Missouri Senate? Um, in the Missouri Synod, there is a special installation right to make a man a district president. Um, in Lutheran churches outside the Missouri Synod, there is classically what's but none in the church, which is, it's called an ordination, but it's an ordination to the episcopate, to the bishop, to, to become a bishop. And really, the Missouri Synod is the only Lutheran church body in the world who functions in the way they do. I mean, that's just, some of the little smaller ones may, but I'm talking of the major Lutheran church bodies all throughout Europe, throughout the, really the rest of the world, and even then in the United States, the Missouri Synod is the only one who has the practice they do today. Yes? Oh, back to Luther's quote on page four, okay. Flip back there. Yes, that, that happens sometimes. Yep. That's right. Um, are you asking Luther? Yeah, for Luther, um, any sort of sacrament performed by someone non-ordained would not be a sacrament. That would be Luther's understanding. Um, Obviously, in cases of an emergency, that would be a different thing. But we're talking normal practice now. 
Yep, that would be a, that would be a different that would be a different sort of question. Um, but you are right. Luther would say, if you'd not been ordained according to apostolic practice, as the ordination rite says, um, is he would say you, you're, you're uh, performing nothing at all. Okay, perfect. So go back to the ordination rite, page 161. Ooh, I got to give you about four more minutes, and then uh, then we'll wrap up today. Okay. Right after he names the candidate, he tells the congregation what he's going to do. The first thing they sing is, Vene Creator Spiritus, come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful people, kindle in them the fire of your love. Now, um, if you look at page 162, it often appears very long in the ordination writing. People sort of you know, start to doze off, but it's actually one of the most important parts. All of these readings which pertain to the office of the ministry. So you have the institution of the office of the ministry, Matthew 28, so the Great Commission is given first and foremost to the apostles um, to carry out the office of the ministry, and then also the institution of the ministry, John chapter 20, the text we looked at earlier. Responsibilities of the ministry, you know, um, deliver whatever Jesus gives, don't neglect the gift, uh, you're a steward of the mysteries, and of course you know if you don't have a steward, you don't have the mystery. That gets back to your point, Larry. Um, page 164, very top there, 2 Timothy 4. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Um, go to page 165. The presiding minister addresses the candidate. Second paragraph. God gathers his church by and around his holy gospel and thereby also grants it growth and increase according to his good pleasure. That this may be done, a reference back to growth and increase, he has established the office of the holy ministry into which you have been called by the church and are now to be ordained and consecrated by prayer and the laying on of hands. You notice the church there is a capital C. It's not a call primarily by a local congregation. It's a call by the church Catholic, the church universal, the church which Jesus, Jesus establishes here on earth. In the presence of God in this congregation, um, I'm sorry, in the presence of this congregation before our Lord God, to whom you must give an account now and at the last day, I ask you, do you subscribe to all of this? Um, the most interesting thing is, look at the top of page 166. Do you confess the unaltered Augsburg Confession, what I just read to you? Um, do you confess the Apology, small and large catechism, small called articles, treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope, and the formula of Concord, everything contained in the Book of Concord? Now, we will talk next week about Walter's Church and Ministry, which is an additional book, which has been approved, um, at least to a certain extent, for synod use. What you notice, though, is this Walter's Church and Ministry does not appear in the list of things for which a pastor must give an account or for which a pastor subscribes. A pastor subscribes unto his death to this. This is an additional thing which we need to talk about. This is confessional. This isn't. Okay? One more thing. The candidate kneels, page 166. The presiding minister lays both hands directly on the head of the candidate and says, this is where he makes him a pastor. And what does he say? John chapter 20. Peace be to you, as the Father sent me, I also send you. Full name, I ordain and consecrate you to the office of the holy ministry of word and sacrament in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And then, of course, on the next page, he goes in to talk to the congregation, obey your leaders, Hebrews 13, and all of that good stuff. Um, so what you should gather from all of this is there's a unique relationship between Christ and his church, pastors and congregations, 
which is at least um, explicated in Ephesians chapter 5 and throughout the Confessions. Moreover, the practice of ordaining men to the ministry is not a man-made or human invention. It actually is an apostolic practice, as you see in the ordination rite, which dates back to John chapter 20, where the apostles are first sent out to forgive and to retain sins. Okay? I'd ask for questions, but we're at 5 after 11. So let's pray, and uh, we'll come back next week. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.